Hey everybody, this is Marn. What you are about to hear is a episode that is a part of a pilot season of a horror book club podcast that was recorded in the winter of 2019-2020, with the last episode being recorded literally right before quarantine uh, went into effect. That's just some context for the pilot season of Dead Letter Society. After this season airs, it will be back with a slightly different different format, but until then, enjoy! Society, a horror book club podcast. I'm Marn, your spooky host, and every other week I'm going to bring a friend into my library of terrors to discuss a novel, short story, or piece of interactive fiction that scares us. Tonight we're going to be talking about Horror Store by Grady Hendrix, and with me is my very good friend Danny. Hi, I'm Danny. I use she, her, and he, him pronouns. I'm on Twitter at uh, ghostzone, but zone is spelled with a V instead of an O, which I realize now is kind of confusing for an audio medium to communicate. And all of my shit that I do is in my pinned tweet. I think the last time Andrew read one of your tweets on the air or was like trying to communicate to me that he was talking about you, he said Ghost Zoon, and I, like, instantly knew who he <laughs> I've had I've had multiple people that have known me for five-plus years tell me, oh, shit, it's Ghost Zone? I thought it was Ghost Zine! <laughs> Which is hilarious, considering, one, while I do think zines are really cool, I don't exactly talk about zines a lot, and two, I literally named myself after Danny Phantom, the character from the show Danny Phantom, where there is a thing called a ghost zone. I think I read it in my head as ghost zine, but like I know what it's supposed to be. <laughs> maybe this is maybe I really should change my Twitter handle. I'm I just, I I don't remember if it was Ghost Zoon. I just know that Andrew pronounced it some way I never anticipated him pronouncing it as, but I still, like, instantly was like, oh, yeah, that daddy. <laughs> <laughs> My actual real girlfriend that I am in love with and intend to marry thought it was Ghost Zoon for a very long time. Oh, my God. Like, an obscene amount of time for the fact that we are incredibly close. Luckily, I think you're the only person I know named Danny, so I don't have to refer to you as, like, Danny Ghost Zoon. I could just, like, say Danny and assume <laughs> that people know who I'm talking about. I'm honored to be your only friend named Danny. That is very shocking to me, considering I feel like every person on the internet I've ever encountered is also named Danny. Yeah, I truly had to think about that one for a second, but I don't... I don't think I know anyone even who goes by, like, Dan or Daniel. I think you're it. <laughs> you're the only Danny. <laughs> I'm the only Danny on the internet. Before we talk about Horror Store, as per usual, 
I'm going to issue content warnings for this book. All of these things may or may not come up in the discussion of the book, but as per usual, if you are listening to this and you haven't read the book yet for some reason, I'm not sure. Well, I, I guess you could be listening to this if you haven't read the book, because we're going to talk about the plot. If you're listening to this and you haven't read the book, just beware that all of these things are in the book and keep yourself safe. So without further ado, the content warnings for horror store are gore, eye horror, body horror, physical and mental torture, self-mutilation, and claustrophobia. I didn't know how to say that one succinctly, but the main character gets like put into a coffin-sized box and like almost drowns in it, so uh, there was no one word that I could sum that up with. I would say also just like drowning in general is kind of a thing that is relevant yeah also this book has some stuff to say about capitalism and the prison industrial complex yes we're gonna talk about it definitely has a lot of things to say so the way that i have been trying to do this is that we talk about the plot in a sort of linear way first and give like a very brief summary and then we go in on how we felt about it and analysis and all of that good stuff. So Horror Store is a novel by Grady Hendrix. It's about an Ikea knockoff store named Orsk and an employee named Amy who works there and you very slowly find out from Amy's point of view she is asked to stay overnight in the store with one of her fellow employees and their deputy manager because he thinks that someone is sneaking into the store at night because there's been like these weird unexplained things going on uh at the store that they're finding in the morning two of their other co-workers also show up because they think that the orsk is haunted and it turns out that they're right (laughs) Uh, (laughs) because you come to find out that the orsk was well first off there's like a fake out where they actually do find somebody hiding in the store and it's like a homeless guy and then they do like a they're like haha it would be fun to like do a seance just for jokes but then the homeless guy actually does get possessed and you come to find out that the orsk was built on top of this uh like panopticon style prison where the warden who is now possessing the the homeless guy who got possessed during the seance basically tortured the prisoners and subjected them to all of this like really fucked up quote-unquote therapy that usually involves like mutilating them and like turning a crank 10,000 times a day until like your fingers start falling off and all of that good stuff and from there it becomes like they have to or well the main character Amy has to like fight her way out of the Orsk and like which is slowly turning back into this like horrible ghost prison and she has to save her co-workers who are also being tortured by the ghost warden and it's good <laughs> that's it's, what i have yeah, to say about no. it <laughs> yeah i would i would heavily agree it's good this has been a great podcast marn i've really loved guesting on it and i really appreciate you asking me to do this but i think we can just chalk it up to it's good it's good nothing else to say about this but <laughs> um <laughs> Oh, I do want to say that at the end, uh, the Orsk 
floods and they and Amy and her store manager Basil do get out uh and two of her co-workers like the ghost hunter co-workers get left behind uh and they are implied to still be in the store with the ghosts and then there's an epilogue where like a year later the Orsk has become like a completely different like big brand name store and Amy and her manager Basil uh, both get jobs there and are like we're gonna go back in and we're gonna save our coworkers because they're our responsibility and it feels shitty that we left them there um, <laughs> and that's how the book ends <laughs> working class solidarity yeah so I first read this book I think when I was a sophomore in college and now that I have a nine to five day job, this was scarier than I remember it being. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have to heartily agree. I feel like if I had read this book, like maybe three years earlier, I would have been like, man, this is kind of spooky. But now it's just like the the scene where um, Amy is being tortured in the tranquilizing chair um yeah and like what's going through my mind i was literally i was reading that and i was like oh shit um grady hendrix do you have my number i just want to (laughs) talk yeah i guess to get into it this book is mostly about how working in a modern day retail store is like being tortured in an 18th century prison (laughs) (laughs) and it's incredibly accurate it really is i i think it definitely helped that i went to ikea last weekend and i had the kind of the store in my mind very fresh as i was reading this Because it also makes the point that, like, stores like Ikea are set up to, like, purposefully disorient you and, like, make you feel like you're in a very liminal space, which I feel like is true. Oh, no, for sure. Like, I just really loved how much this book talked about how much capitalism sucks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I I have yet to read, I think, another horror novel that goes in so much on the evils of modern capitalism. Like, every single kind of, like, main character in this book who works at Orsk is being fucked over by the system in some way that is, like, very palpable. And it all feels, like, extremely real to working a job in 2020. (laughs) The part of the book, I don't remember where, where um, one of the pages has the, like, employee evaluations by Basil, and at the bottom is Ruth Ann's, Mm -hmm. and it talks about how he's like, I severely recommend this employee for a promotion. She hasn't gotten a promotion or a pay raise in three years, and she's been working here for 14 years. Kind of fucked up, guys. That one hit me really hard. (laughs) That one was just, I was just like, the, the Ruth Ann, like, when they're the first, like, very scared of the store before they've discovered Carl, the homeless man, and they're just, like, walking around in the dark and ghosts haven't showed up yet. Where Ruth Ann just, like, goes off at Amy and gets <gasps> yeah. really angry at her and starts talking about how, like, her – she has no friends. She has no family. This job is her life. This job is her family. And this is – she can't afford to lose it. Was just – it. oh, man, it hit really hard. 
Yeah, when I started rereading this book, like, literally the only thing I remembered was the whole, like, Ruth Ann's kind of arc because it fucked me up real bad the first time I read it. (laughs) Yeah, and not just, I mean, all of the character arcs, like, like you said, everyone's getting fucked over by the system in some way or another. I think Ruth Ann's hit me the most, but all of them were just very, like, especially um, Amy's was also just, like, incredibly difficult amy's as someone who is like in college who's like had to contemplate dropping out at certain points because of various because of specific financial things that have happened to me it was it was so much like oh my god i don't want this to happen to me (laughs) i also really liked how it kind of deconstructed it a little bit with basil the manager because like he very much starts off like from Amy's point of view as like oh he's very responsible and he like gets on her ass all the time but then you like find out from the other characters telling Amy that like no he actually is from like a really bad neighborhood and he's like raising his little sister and they don't really have parents and the reason that he is like incredibly responsible is because like he got this really good job and he feels like he owes basically everything to Orsk. So, like, he has to be, like, extremely gung-ho about it. Yes. I think there's there's a, um, it might be, like, a tweet or a Tumblr post or something that was going around uh, a couple months back about how, like, the, your manager at McDonald's is not your enemy in the sense that you are much closer to your manager at McDonald's than you are to, like, jeff bezos or whatever and that's like a that's a hyperbolic comparison but you get the point and i just i felt that so hard with the way bezos arc ended up especially i really um the part where amy remarks that um when basil basically like sacrifices himself i mean he's not really dead but when he basically sacrifices himself to the prisoners so that amy can get away eventually um and amy's like wow, he really did mean all that stuff about trying to do the best for us and helping us, and now I feel like an asshole. And the stuff at the end where, like, the people from corporate show up, like, right as they escape the uh, the store, and they're like, hey, if you, like, promise not to tell anybody about this and just, like, sign a non-disclosure agreement, we'll get you really good jobs at corporate. And Amy and Basil are both like, uh, but we, like, have to go in and save our coworkers because they're our responsibility. And the people for corporate are like, no, that's fake. <laughs> yes, oh my god, I, the part where the people from corporate are like, well, they didn't clock in, so are they really there? Yeah. Like, dude, these people died! And it's just, <laughs> I think it so starkly shows, like, the reality of what capitalism does and, like, Basil is not Amy's enemy. This guy from corporate, he is Amy's mm-hmm. enemy. Yeah. Uh, that makes me, that made me so mad. I like forgot I, that that mm. happened at the end of the book. <laughs> I, I was in um, the student union at my college when I was finishing the book. And I, if I hadn't been in a public place surrounded by people, I literally would have like closed the book and thrown it across the room. I was... So his his like specific words were for, were like they didn't clock in so are they really our responsibility when you think about it or something like that and it just made me so furiously angry because that's that's the reality of how a lot of these situations get dealt with 
Yeah, that's like, and, and this is really like shit that happens every day. Like some horrible disaster will happen at like a big box store and they just like don't admit responsibility for it, but they just like very quietly shut down and like give the families a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's very much like, I mean, eat the rich. It's very much, it's very much something to be very angry about. I think it's amazing how this novel is like it's a horror novel like a lot of supernatural horror stuff happens but also the real horror underlying all of the supernatural horror is the entire time is capitalism like even when josiah the warden is talking about the way he treats his prisoners it's always under the pretense of he overworks them he makes them do labor in order to like cleanse their souls or whatever and that labor is akin to torture and it's labor that he sees in Amy, he sees in Basil, he sees in ev- all of the characters, and that he tries to get them to do these things that they're basically almost already doing. Modern day retail employeeship is just uh, 18th century torture. Yeah, I think that this is the only book that I've read that comes the closest to being like, hey, uh, capitalism is slave labor, actually. <laughs> yes. And especially considering that, like, there is currently actual, literal slave labor happening in our prison systems, and this um, story takes place in, like, a giant prison. Yeah. It's Grady Hendrix. What a mind. (laughs) I picked up one of his other books that I haven't read from the library. I'm really excited to read it, uh, because in rereading Horror Story, I remembered how much I, I like him as an author. (laughs) yes i really enjoyed the like style of amy's narration it this is gonna sound like an insult and i promise it's not it reminded me a lot of how rick riordan writes but like way better i can see that but just like one of the things i really love about like percy jackson's narration is the whole thing is kind of an in like a snarky in joke with the reader and you never feel like you're being laughed at you feel like you're laughing with whatever's happening and it's very like tongue-in-cheek like ho ho but I won't tell kind of thing uh and that really I feel like that was really something that I enjoyed about this book I just realized that all of Grady Hendrix's novels including the one that is coming out in like two months have female protagonists so good job Grady Hendrix <laughs> good job Grady Hendrix <laughs> you did it I was a little worried when Amy, you can presume Amy is white, and then Basil was introduced as, like, this terrible presence in her life, and he was, like, a black man. But, Grady, you turned it around. <laughs> you did it, Grady. You did it, Grady. I didn't expect you to turn it that way, but you did turn it that way, and I'm proud of you for it. <laughs> and then there are the two other coworkers who go missing, who don't really get, like, a complete arc, but... They are also just, like, very miserable employees. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the whole their whole thing is that they want to make a ghost hunting show because they yeah. need to make more money. Yeah. And one of them is, like, only pretending that he believes in ghosts because he's really into his female coworker who extremely believes in ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> Which, gotta say, maybe not the right way to go about that relationship, man. And then, um, and then you find out at the end that they might still be alive, which is horrifying. 
I know, and they've just been in the ghost panopticon the entire time. Terrible. Uh <laughs> Imagine being stuck in like the So what we haven't explained is that like when the Orsk becomes like night haunted, like the the ghosts come out at night or whatever, there's also like all of the fake doors in the showroom open up into like the prison panopticon which is called the beehive so there's like a whole other maze inside the ikea and like imagine being trapped in just like the the walls behind an ikea showroom (laughs) for a year oh my god (laughs) especially in the state that they were in when they were trapped yeah, yeah, you don't see, like, what happens to Matt, but Trinity's, like, hands are fucked up and broken. The part that I also found interesting is that the warden dies kind of at the start of the last third of the book, but then the prisoners just, like, keep doing all of the stuff that they were doing because they literally don't know what else to do. They're still trapped in the system. Yeah, and they're still torturing each other, and that's capitalism, baby. <laughs> that's capitalism, baby. I I think it's it's really interesting how it kind of illustrates the point of like this is why we need. I, I think it's something that uh, Parasite does really well as well, where it's a lot. One of the central themes of Par- Parasite, I feel like, is the need for working class solidarity. Because rich people are not your friends and they will not help you. And I think this book shows, like, the prisoners need to unionize. (laughs) Even when Josiah is gone, they're still stuck in the system of capitalism because capitalism, they have no idea how to end capitalism because capitalism is never ending and no one ever explained to them what else they could possibly be because they've been so, their souls have been so crushed under the weight of this labor they've been forced to produce. They have no concept of there's a way out. Even when they all gang up to kill Josiah, they're still stuck in the same loop of what they were doing afterwards. Yeah, Amy, like, tries to explain to them. She's like, you can just walk away. Like, you don't have to keep doing this. And it just, like, doesn't make an impression on them. Yeah, I... That part really, like, when when she realized that they were still, like, coming after her and Basil, that part really hit me. The pit of my stomach just, like, dropped. I was just like, oh, shit, they're not, they didn't free the ghosts. The whole, like, you can just walk away thing also is, like, I feel like that's every, like, nine to five workers fantasy. Like, I saw a tweet about it the other day of, like, just, like, the constant intrusive thought of, like, when you're commuting to work being, like, I could just drive past my office and keep going. <laughs> yes. Yes, I um I watched this show on Dropout, the college humor streaming service called Total Forgiveness, um where these people, these two friends gave each other crazy dares to like pay off their student loan debt. And um they did like at the end of the first season they did like a reunion podcast kind of thing where they discussed like cuz a lot of really fucked up shit happened in the show by virtue of what it was. Uh so they discussed like some of the controversies of the things that had happened. 
And one of the people was talking about how when he got the job at College Humor, he got got the call while he was at one of his jobs where he was like selling um, green energy to people in New York. And he got the call while he was at his job and he literally just left. And everyone in the room was just like, oh my God, that's the dream. You got to walk out. That's what everyone dreams of when they have a job. And I think that's, it's so true. Like, you want to be able to just leave. No matter how much you like your job, quote unquote, like your job, you just want to leave. Yeah, I I personally like my job. uh, And still, like, once a week, I'm like, I could just, uh, I could just turn around on my commute and go home. I, that's, that's available to me. (laughs) Yeah, no, same. I have two jobs and I love both of them a lot, but I still, sometimes when I have to wake, I have to wake up really early in the morning for, uh, most of my shifts. And every time I wake up, I just think I could just sleep here and make it someone else's problem. (laughs) I could just go back to bed. (laughs) The other thing that the end reminded me of is, are you familiar with the murder Kroger? No. There is a Kroger in Atlanta. It actually has its own Wikipedia page where four people have been murdered there since 1991. No, three people have been murdered and they found a dead body on the premises. And basically every time it happens, they they try to like rebrand it and are like no guys like this is a this is a cool place to be still uh and recently in 2016 they uh they demolished it and then they like last year built a new kroger there and people are still calling it the murder kroger but like corporate is very much trying to force people calling it like just the the Kroger on 725 Ponds de Leon Avenue in Atlanta. You know, the 725 Ponds Kroger. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're so tired of people calling it the murder Kroger because they just cannot rebrand from that. (laughs) They've tried to rebrand it like twice. They tried to get people to call it the Beltline Kroger as well. That is wild. I feel like if you have a Kroger and multiple people have been murdered there and then you end up demolishing it anyway, just don't build another Kroger. I know. I think they were like supposed to build like a like a office complex or a strip mall there, but somehow they ended up building another Kroger. <laughs> and it's like every time they try to rebrand it, like a dead body turns up on the premises and people start calling the calling it the murder Kroger again. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Kroger's come haunted. Like, you step into a Kroger and it's like, <laughs> oh, there are ghosts here. Um, the local Kroger uh, by my house was once uh, infested with rats and had to be closed <gasps> for a week. Oh, my God. Well, they, like, fumigated it. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, I don't shop there anymore. I never really did shop there, but I try not to buy stuff from there anymore. Um, because it's forever like infested with rats in my mind, even though they're like, no guys, all the rats are gone. Don't worry. Uh, do we want to talk about the graphic design of this book? Cause it rules. Yes. I, my, my J-O-B job, I'm a page editor for a newspaper and that comes with a lot of like graphic design responsibilities as well. And this book, when I got it in the mail, I was, I, I was like, oh, 
it's bigger than I expected. And like, I had seen the cover before, so I knew what it looked like. And I opened it up and I was just like, oh my goodness, this is incredible. It's so it's so cleanly designed and it's to the point where multiple people when they saw me reading it around campus were like are you reading an Ikea catalog yeah it's um the graphic design is like one of the only things I talk about in this book when I recommend it to people because I kind of want them to go unsurprised Grady Hendrix's books have just like amazing graphic design in a way that I've never seen horror novels do before and I think that it is because he is, like, extremely well-versed in, like, pulp horror covers and design. Because he, he also put out, like, a non-fiction book that is entirely, like, a collection of, like, pulp horror covers um, that are rare and hard to find. I know he had, like, a, a, a graphic designer who he worked with on this who is named on the title page. It is, their name is Andy Reid. And... I assume that they probably worked together for at least the the text and some of the more finicky stuff. But um, one of my favorite things about the graphic design is that each chapter title page is like a, a page from the catalog and it has like a little illustration of like a piece of not Ikea furniture and like a little blurb about it. Uh, and as you progress through the book, they stop being furniture and they start being like the torture implements used to torture the prisoners in the beehive. I loved that. When I started reading the book and I noticed that like all of the chapter, um, the chapter title pages were knockoff Ikea items that would show up in the chapter that like were predominant in some way. I was like, oh, that's cool. That's a really cool thing. And then I started looking like I saw one of the torture devices and I was like, that wait a second and I read it and I was like oh well (laughs) this is going to be unpleasant I like that the last one is just a gurney I I was literally just about to say I loved the gurney at the end when I saw that I was like oh thank god they're getting medical assistance in this chapter um the graphic design of this book fucking rules (laughs) It's so good. I think it does such a great job of taking like something that is so is so familiar to people as like this like pleasant like oh it's it's IKEA like they have good meatballs and you just have you just can just kind of wander there and it's kind of cool. And something that like presents itself as such like a sunny like we're IKEA, we love furniture and stuff as this like deeply unsettling narration device of just for like for example when the employee evaluation showed up and it talks about like the different like aspects of the job that basil thinks they're doing a good job at or doing a bad job at um and then at the bottom it's ruth ann's and it's talking about how she's never had a promotion in three years like she hasn't had a pay raise in three years and she's been working there for 14 years i think it does such a good job of taking these like kind of mundane everyday ordinary things that are presented with such like a sunny exterior and turning them into something that's just deeply horrifying. Mm-hmm. Because that's how capitalism works. Like, that's what advertising is. That's why we think of Ikea in a pleasant way. Because they have projected this front. I would not be surprised if I found out that the owners of Ikea are, like, absolutely horrible people. Who have just, like, contributed so much to, like, the defamation of the world or something like that. Oh, no. Um Wait, I gotta Google this now and make sure. 
<laughs> they're not like murderers. Uh, while I'm doing that, I also really like the stuff that is thrown in there that isn't the catalog covers. I really like, um, especially like the really surprising ones, like when they they find like that whole wall of graffiti in the bathroom, and you just turn the page, and like the whole wall is there in the book for you to look at. Yes. Yeah. That was really, that one really showed, like, the scale of, like, what Amy just found in the bathroom. Who founded Ikea? Well, he died two years ago. So he's he not, not actively murdering people. Apparently he was at one point the 11th richest person in the world. Well, uh, then he's on the shit list. Yeah. Rich people bad. <laughs> By virtue of being billionaires, they do definitely suck. All right. Who, who runs Ikea now? Probably someone who also of, sucks. If I yeah, had to guess, who don't have Wikipedia pages. <laughs> I personally have no brand loyalty to IKEA, but it is a very nice place to like get a thirty-minute walk in when it's yucky outside and you just like want a change of scenery. <laughs> <laughs> That's my feelings on IKEA. Also, I like their meatballs. <laughs> I also really like their meatballs. Um. I used to live in a town that had an Ikea that was literally like 15 minutes away from my house. And my family would go there all the time. Uh, And now I live about 45 minutes away from an Ikea. And I'll make my way down there occasionally to browse the furniture and eat the meatballs. Alyssa lives like 15 minutes away from a shopping center that has an Ikea in it. And it is like the Ikea apparently that like all of the gay people go to because every time we're there, like half the people there are lesbians. (laughs) It's like wild. I don't know why it's that specific Ikea. What a lot of people don't know is that the I in Ikea is actually a lowercase L and it does stand for lesbian. don't generally tell you is that the I in LGBTQIA actually stands for Ikea. (laughs) That one, see, I like that one more than mine because there were a lot less steps you had to go through to get to it. Just some streamlined comedy right there. Oh my god, speaking of LGBTQIA, I've been telling this story to everyone because it boggled my mind. So I work at a university, and uh, on Valentine's Day, they put out like little bowls with gay pride ribbons on them with signs that were like, support your LGBT friends on Valentine's Day. And I was like, that's a really nice gesture, but I what are you implying here that like your LGBT friends don't have dates on Valentine's Day? What's happening? (laughs) (laughs) Like, I think what happened is that they had a bunch of ribbon left over, like a bunch of uh, gay pride ribbons left over from Pride Month. And they were like, we have to use these somehow. And they were like, oh, Valentine's Day. Gay people date. (laughs) Gay people do date. That is a thing that gay people can confirm. You know, Valentine's Day, that famously gay holiday. 
I was about to say a lot of people don't know this, uh, but Valentine's Day is in the gay community is colloquial known as uh, Pride Two, um, the sequel, <laughs> the sequel to Pride. Uh, uh, it does, I will say, does come before Pride in kind of like the temporal sense, but really spiritually, it's after Pride. God, Pride Two. <laughs> Pride, but better. <laughs> too pride, too furious. <laughs> oh, we should ha- we should have pride too. Why isn't that a thing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you believe in yourself, every month is pride. Mm, you're right. You've got me there. <laughs> There's a section on the IKEA Wikipedia page called Child Deaths. Oh. Apparently, one of their dressers killed a bunch of children. Oh my god. And injured and injured a lot of other people. That's IKEA. Um That's a little That's that's pretty wild. <laughs> Which brings me to something else I want to talk about, um, what is with the cultural preoccupation with Ikea being a subject of horror? Because there's horror store, there's the SCP that's the infinite Ikea, and then my friends told me that there's another novel that came out recently about two ex-girlfriends who have to rescue a customer from an alternate dimension inside of an Ikea. I just want to add um, add something into the Ikea horror genre. Um, I recently, not recently, but this summer, I got a short box from uh, Shortbox Comics where they send you like a bunch of like 60, 50 page comics in, the, in like a little box in the mail. And one of the comics was about how Ikea is actually secretly the labyrinth from Greek mythology. Oh, shit. Um, That sounds awesome. (laughs) And these two uh, best friends who were, like, having kind of a hard... They're roommates, and they were having kind of a hard time. Had to, like, navigate the Ikea while also navigating their relationship with each other. And it all eventually built up when they realized that they were well and truly lost. And then they, like found what they were looking for finally i don't know i really enjoyed it i think it was called minotaur oh that sounds dope but minotaur was spelled like vaguely swedish yeah the uh the the queer one is called finna and i think it just came out and i want to read it my friends just recommended it to me like this week because in one of our group chats, they were like, oh, yeah, there's this, like, uh, like Ikea horror story where it's, like, an alternate dimension Ikea. And I was like, you mean horror store? Like, the book that I'm reading right now? And they were like, no, no, a different one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when people make those incredibly specific letterboxed categories, mm-hmm. and then there's more than one thing that fits into it. Yeah, I, I seriously want to know how... Ikea is coming into the public consciousness as, like, something that should be feared. (laughs) I feel like part of it is what this book touched on, which that it's made to disorient you. It's made to be this liminal space where you don't feel like you are in the real world. 
And it's also, like, they make so much effort to make it, like, your friendly neighborhood Swedish people who run Ikea. Like, we're all just cool and fine and everything is great here. And you're so bombarded with these messages when you're in an Ikea about how, like, how great everything is and how wonderful this whole place is and how wonderful your life is going to be once you get out of here. But who knows when that will be. That it's very easy to turn that into something that can become incredibly horrifying. It is also definitely wild that Ikeas are, like, set up like a labyrinth and we just, like, allow that to happen. Oh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's capitalism, baby. <laughs> like, having just been in one, it is wild that Ikea kind of is designed to keep you moving throughout the store in very much, like, the way that they think you are supposed to, and just, like, encourage a, a curated experience of the store, and it was very weird because, like, this past weekend was the first time that I've, like, sat down in an Ikea for an extended period of time for, like, in, like, a place that was not the cafe. Like, Alyssa and I just, like, sat down at a table in one of the, like, showrooms to have a conversation. And I was like, is this allowed? <laughs> the whole time in my brain, I was like, are we allowed to do this? Are, th- are somebody, like, going to come over and yell at us? <laughs> Because, like, you have the idea that you're supposed to be, like, constantly moving around. Yeah, I mean, there's, like, arrows everywhere. Yeah, they they do put arrows on the floor. I think the repetition that this book used of, like, the bright and shining path and insisting on always calling it the bright and shining path, all capital letters, was really interesting to me, especially given, like, what you're saying about, like, Ikea's built like a labyrinth where there's only like one specific way out and you have to follow this very specific bright and shining path in order to ever leave an Ikea. I used to, when I was a kid, I would absolutely hate going to Ikea with my family. I would always have fun at an Ikea, but I would hate it because whenever we got to the marketplace, which is where they sell like glasses and silverware and like Uh, lamps and stuff like that that's not like the showroom whenever we got to the marketplace we would spend literally hours in there because my Mm -hmm. mom would my mom would be following the flow of the store but she would always see something new that she wanted and it would take us forever to find our way out because she would be constantly looking around for new things to buy even though we didn't need anything and she would insist that she was just trying to look And it very much felt like I was trapped in a labyrinth without escape, especially because there are no windows. So there's really no way to tell. Like, you have no sense of time in an Ikea. That is really interesting to me, because if you think about it, like, the way that Ikea is set up is kind of fucked up, where it's like, you go through, like, the nice showrooms and everything, and then, like, literally underneath of it is, like, a windowless marketplace where you perform (laughs) consumerism. (laughs) I want to get I want to get that quote tattooed on my forehead. <laughs> a windowless marketplace where you perform consumerism. <laughs> a windowless marketplace where you perform consumerism. That right there is an ARG, Marn. You're right. Like that's an idea for an ARG right there. IKEA, let me write you an ARG 2020. <laughs> <laughs> IKEA, I am once again asking you <laughs> to let me write an IKEA ARG. <laughs> 
I'm I'm gonna make a LARP that can only be played in IKEA. Oh fuck! Oh, that's so good. <laughs> that's a free idea. Oh, You're you should... allowed to take that because I will never make a LARP. Oh god, game jam where you have to write games that can only be played at IKEA. <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be incredible. I feel like you would get some really good some really good games out of that. Yeah, and, like, I feel like it is very a thing. Well, I guess it's it's been a thing since the 80s, but I feel like it's more predominantly coming into, like, horror movies and books and such and kind of general horror culture to write things that are a very thinly veiled metaphor for how fucked up capitalism is. I feel like that's coming back into style because more people are of our generation are kind of like becoming radicalized and realizing that capitalism is super fucked up. And it really is something that there is a lot to say about, especially in like more kind of fantastical sci-fi horror ways, I think. (laughs) No, yeah, I I agree. It's I uh a couple like a month ago I uh watched Sorry to Bother You for the first time and um I actually got into kind of a I it's like a stretch to call it an argument, but like a discussion with my girlfriend about how uh she had never seen Sorry to Bother You and she didn't want to. She only read the wiki, so she already knew like the big twist at the end. And she was like, "I don't want to watch this movie because I feel like the turn into like this fantastical world would be too much for me like it would pull me out of the story and I was trying to explain to her that it's something that is so realistic within the context of the movie and within the context of like our current society that of course this is where they would go like this is where capitalism would evolve to it makes so much sense within the fiction of the movie and within the reality of the like climate of 2020 that I didn't even really notice it as something that was like strange I just noticed it as something that was like wow that's incredibly fucked up that that happened in this movie yeah and I and I think like and I well I think and I hope that as more people from our generation get older and and start like publishing books and and making feature films and stuff like that we will see more of that because I I think that it's something important to talk about. And, like, I think that horror especially provides a very convenient framework for us to be like, hey, wouldn't it be fucked up if all of this stuff that was real happened to you and also, like, there was a ghost prison underneath your shitty day job? <laughs> <laughs> Both that your shitty day job is a prison and also there's a ghost prison that is your shitty day job. Yeah, and like, I feel like that is kind of a reason why there, there's there been kind of this resurgence of like horror set in very commercial spaces. Like there's a guy on the No Sleep Reddit who writes like an entire series about like horrific stuff happening at like a gas station that he works at overnight and stuff like that. And I feel like it's because when you set it from the point of view of a minimum wage worker who like works at one of those places, like it is already inherently kind of 
grim. Yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, well, what if I, I took this bad situation and, like, made it worse? Which is a lot of horrors. What if I took, like, a a mundane bad situation and made it, like, the worst possible iteration of that bad situation? <laughs> And what's wild about that is if you had told me, I used to work at uh, Sonic, the like fast food restaurant. Um, It was the worst job I've ever had in my life. And it led to a lot of very bad things that happened in my life. But when I, if you had told me when I was working that job that there was secretly a like miniature prison that had been raised under the Sonic and, um... And they were like, the Sonic was haunted with the ghosts of the dead prisoners who were tortured to work the like the same like the same shifts that I had been working. Uh, I would not have been surprised. Like I wouldn't even blink at that. Probably I would just be like, I mean, I might be a little like, oh, huh, Ex- explicit confirmation, ghosts are real. But other than that, I probably would have been like, yeah, no, that tracks for sure. Yeah, um, minimum wage work is, is, is bad. <laughs> it's horrifying. <laughs> I think it's the moral here. I think that, I think that there's also kind of the, from a cultural standpoint, let's see if I can explain this, because I, I know exactly what I'm thinking of, but let's see if I can make it be real words. I think that there's a very liminal feeling about being in a store like Ikea longer than you are supposed to be there. Because, especially because Ikea is a very curated experience, it's like, oh, but what if I was there at two o'clock in the morning and the showroom was completely dark and it was not as it was supposed to be? Like, I I feel like that is inherently kind of unsettling because you are so used to the the kind of guided experience in a brightly lit ikea (laughs) no yeah that that uh makes a lot of sense i was very i was incredibly unsettled every time they described the showroom floor in the dark Mm -hmm. a lot of this book takes place in like complete darkness and can i just say loved it loved it like thematically as a person who has like a budding fear of the dark not a fan yeah like it it's so interesting because like it seems like a very cheap scare tactic to be like oh what if this big corporate store that you know and love was dark and there were ghosts there but it's like no <laughs> actually what if you were in an ikea and all of the lights went out <laughs> yeah it, even even the emergency lights which as basil says aren't even supposed to go out in an earthquake uh-huh because, like, I personally feel that if you're in, like, a brightly lit, like, friendly big box store or whatever, and all of the lights go out, that is now a hostile environment. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I would, if I were at, like, a Sam's Club, and, like, all of the lights went out all of a sudden, I would literally just, like, probably curl into a ball and just wait for my time to come. And it's like, yeah, it is a very simple thing to be, like oh, it's dark, so that's that means it's spooky. But, like, yeah, sometimes that's very effective. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it is dark and it is spooky. I also do like how a lot of the, like, Ikea-based horror stuff seems to revolve around, like, what if the Ikea was bigger than it actually seems? Because it really 
does feel like it is bigger than it looks like from the outside when you're walking around inside of an Ikea. <laughs> oh, yeah. It feels like its own, like, miniature city. It is, like, th- that is, like, very true to the, the spatial experience of an Ikea. <laughs> <laughs> it both feels, like, yeah. bigger and smaller than it should be. Because, <laughs> like, I, I don't know if you've read, like, the SCP that is the Ikea, but... I have it's- not. Uh, so basically, it's it's like a, a regular Ikea from the outside, but then when you walk into it, it's just like an infinite Ikea. Um, <laughs> and like, it it has like its own day-night cycle where like the, the lights will go out at night. And um, when the lights go out at night, all of the employees within the Ikea become instantly hostile to everyone else there. Uh, because they're trying to get you to leave the building because the store is closed. (laughs) And it's like, it's such a simple concept, but it's so, it's, it's just done so well that it's like, oh yeah, this makes sense to me. (laughs) I mean, I don't know about you, but if I were in an Ikea and the lights went out and then suddenly... All of the employees began trying to attack me. Yeah. I would be I would be very terrified. And there's like there's there's also like so I just googled it. It's SCP 3008 if anybody wants to look it up. I'll probably like put a link to it in the end of this episode or whatever. Uh there's like a a whole little story where like a guy makes it out and um and dies and they like find his journal and it's like yeah, there's a bunch of people trapped in here and they they have like formed like a town inside of the infinite ikea and they have this whole like social structure that they've made in the ikea because they can't leave oh my goodness what if you just lived in an ikea what if you established your own town inside the ikea and you were both girls yeah so what have we learned from this book, Danny? <laughs> you know, fuck capitalism. Grady Hendrix said, "Fuck capitalism." <laughs> to quote Grady Hendrix, um, and this is an exact quote: "Capitalism can eat my ass." Grady Hendrix, uh, twenty, whenever this book came out, twenty fifteen. <laughs> I think it might have been twenty fifteen. That sounds about right. I remember that I think I heard about it before it was like a a mainstream thing. And I think I I bought my copy that I have somewhere from just like Grady Hendrix's website because it wasn't on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) You got in on the ground floor. I really did. Also, the other thing I wanted to say before we start wrapping up is that they are making a horror store TV show that has apparently been in production since 2015. <laughs> so, production hell, it seems. Apparently, and like, I I read a little bit about the TV show last night because I, I was curious, like, what was going on with it. Like, apparently it's still happening, but I'm kind of mad because it sounds like they changed the whole plot of the book i found like a blog post by someone talking about it and they were like 
Yeah, apparently it it's about like this person who works at the Orsk, but all of like the stuff that they sell to people is cursed and it's and it sounds like it's almost like an anthology show about like people just like buying cursed IKEA products and I was like, You bastards, that's not what it was about and you yeah. know it. <laughs> That's not anything like what it's about. You just like read this book and you were like, that's nice. But like, uh, what if it was less anti-capitalism? <laughs> <laughs> what if it actually wasn't about how capitalism is slave labor? <laughs> what if we sucked some corporate dicks so that we could get this project made and we just forgot about the message of the book and the core God. thematic principles? God. That aside, I think this would be a good movie. I don't know how they ever expected to make it a TV show. <laughs> I also think this would be a very good movie. There was a lot of very um visceral imagery. Yeah. Most of the stuff I remembered from uh having last read it in like twenty fifteen was just like the really scary stuff. And like I didn't know that I had vivid memories of some of it until I hit the part where it happened and I was like, oh my god, yeah, I remember what's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> like the the part with Ruth Ann in the vent is like literally one oh of the scariest god. things I've read in the past decade and I think about it all the time. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. When it like describes her hands And you realize, like, what she has done? Mmm. Oh, boy. Yeah. Especially because... Finger-related gore is not something I do well with. And I think about that part all the time. Oh, no. I definitely relate because drowning is not something I do well with. And neither is claustrophobia. And there's a claustrophobia drowning scene in this book. Yeah. And the whole time I was just like, oh man, can't wait till this is over. Yeah, it's Grady Hendrix does a pretty cool thing with this book where it starts out kind of goofy and you're like, oh yeah, haha, it's like a hard novel set in in an Ikea. That's fun. And then it like punches you in the nuts and then it does not stop punching you in the nuts. Just repeated <laughs> nut punching the whole time. They're just turning that <laughs> nut punching crank 10,000 times. <laughs> Grady Hendrix drives to your house and punches you in the nuts. My my TikTok POV, Grady Hendrix drives to my house and punches me in the nuts after I read um, this novel. Oh. Comrade Grady. <laughs> Comrade Grady Hendrix. Oh, God. Um, in conclusion, read Horror Store. Also, uh, read Grady Hendrix's other books. I haven't read We Sold Our Souls, which is the one that I got out of the library. But I have read My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is very good. Uh, it's an 80s horror novel about a teenager whose best friend gets possessed. And he has one coming out in April that I'm very excited for, which is about a southern suburban mom's book club who become vampire hunters because a vampire moves into their suburb. That sounds incredible. I know, I'm so fucking excited. I, like, didn't even know it was coming out until a couple weeks ago, and I saw the summary, like, on Goodreads, and I was like, 
I need to pre-order this book, like, immediately right now. (laughs) Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. I'm really excited for it. And he also, I think, has a couple short stories that are out there on the internet. And I feel like he's written other stuff pre-horror store, but it might be hard to find because he, like, wasn't a popular novel until horror store got kind of big. I am definitely going to be looking for his stuff now. It's good. Um, I really like My Best Friend's Exorcism. I lent Alyssa my copy of it, like, years ago, and I have to get it back because I want to reread it. <laughs> uh, it also has, like, cool graphic design stuff because the covers are laid out like a um, like a high school yearbook from the 80s. Oh, that rules. Yeah. Uh, I, have, I have yet to crack open We Sold Our Souls, but I think the paperback copy at least has some cool graphic design stuff. That one is about... A hang on, I'm looking it up because I want to make sure I'm summarizing summarizing it right. Yeah, it's a, it's about a um a heavy metal band who their lead singer sells his soul to the devil to become famous, and he like leaves the rest of the band behind. And it's about the guitarist who like fell into obscurity and now has to like find him and reckon with like this demonic nonsense like several years later (laughs) which is like incredibly my shit so i'm excited to read it (laughs) yeah these all sound like absolute bangers they're really good grady hendrix is just like really good at writing extremely unique horror concepts i think so in conclusion uh read grady hendrix's novels and i think that that is gonna do it for us you can find me on Twitter at Corpse Survivors. Uh, you can find this podcast on Twitter at Dead Letter Pod. Uh, and where can they find you on Twitter, Danny? You can find me on Twitter at Ghost Zone, but Zone is spelled with a V instead of an O. And then you can find all of my writing and other projects I do. I do some experimental film stuff and stuff like that in my pin tweet. Hell yeah. And until next time, this has been uh, another meeting of the Dead Letter Society. Yeah. <laughs> and then the music okay. plays. <laughs> Hey DJ, give me a Home Depot style beat. Hey Riley. Yeah, Andrew. What do you say we build ourselves a podcast? That's a great idea, but what should it be about? So I'm thinking podcast where I call my grandma Jane and explain to her the plot of an anime. Podcast titled Don't Listen to My Dad. The Lin Manuel Miranda Epic Rap Battles of Mystery podcast. What if we call it The Podcast Minds? There but for the grace of pod go we. And it comes out every Friday. <laughs> Riley, I want you to know that we're trying to make podcasts and not weapons here. <laughs> What's the difference? <laughs>